0: Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 17. Continuing on with our Historic Preservation series. Uh, So, the Historic Preservationist tonight is uh, going to talk a little bit about exterior paint problems on uh, historic woodwork. Okay, So, uh, this episode expands on the advice for the historic preservationist, architect, building manager, contractor, or homeowner by identifying and describing common types of paint and surface conditions and failures when recommending appropriate treatments for preparing exterior wood surfaces for repainting to assure the best adhesion and greatest durability of the new paint. Although the brief focuses on responsible methods of paint removal, Several paint surface conditions will be described which do not secure any paint removal and still others which can be successfully handled by limited paint removal. In all cases, the information is intended to address the concerns related to exterior wood. I will also be generally assuming that because houses built before 1950 involve one or more layers of lead-based paint. The majority of conditions warranting paint removal will mean dealing with toxic substances along with dangers of the paint removal tools and chemical strippers themselves. So let's talk about purposes of exterior paint. What does it serve to protect a historic house? Paint applied to exterior wood must withstand yearly extremes of both temperature and humidity while never expected to be more than a temporary physical shield, requiring reapplication every five to eight years. Its importance should not be minimized, however, because of the main causes of wood deterioration, moisture, and its penetration. A primary purpose for painting wood is to exclude such moisture, thereby slowing exterior deterioration not only of a building's outside siding, and decorative features, but ultimately its underlying structural members. Another important purpose for painting wood is, of course, to define and accent architectural features and help to improve the appearance of the dwelling. So how to treat paint problems on historic buildings. The exterior paint is constantly deteriorating through the processes of weathering. But in a program of regular maintenance, assuming all other building systems are functioning properly, surfaces can be cleaned, lightly scraped, and hand-sanded in preparation for a new finished coat. Unfortunately, these are ideal conditions. More often, complex maintenance problems are inherited by owners of historic buildings, including areas of paint that have failed beyond the point of mere cleaning scraping and hand sanding, although much so-called paint failure is attributable to interior or exterior moisture problems or surface preparation and application mistakes with previous coats. Although paint problems are by no means unique to historic buildings, treating multiple layers of hardened brittle paint on complex ornamental and possibly fragile exterior wood surfaces necessarily requires an extremely cautious approach. So in the case of recent construction, this level of concern is not needed because the wood is generally less detailed and in addition, retention of the sequence of paint layers as a partial record of the building's history is not an issue at all. So when historic buildings are involved, however, a special set of problems arises, varying in complexity depending upon their age, architectural style, historical importance, and physical soundness of the wood, which must be carefully evaluated so the decisions can be made that are sensitive to the longevity of the resource. So let's talk about justification for paint removal. So at the outset of this brief, it must be emphasized that removing paint from historic buildings with the exception of cleaning light scraping and hand sanding as part of yearly routine maintenance should be avoided unless absolutely essential once conditions war- <coughs> warranting removal have been identified the general approach should be to remove paint to the next sound layer usually using, using the gentlest means possible, then to repaint. Practically speaking as well, paint can adhere to or just effectively to existing paint as to bare wood, providing the previous coats of paint are also adhering uniformly and tightly to the wood and the surface is properly prepared for repainting. cleaned of dirt and chalk and dulled by sanding. But if painted exterior wood surfaces display continuous patterns of deep cracks, or if they are extensively blistering and peeling so that the bare wood is visible, then the old paint should be completely removed before repainting. The only other justification for removing all previous layers of paint is if doors, shutters, or windows have literally been painted shut or if new wood is being placed in adjacent to old painted wood as a smooth transition. So let's talk about paint removal precautions. Because paint removal is a difficult and painstaking process, a number of costly, regrettable experiences have occurred and continue to occur for both the house, the historic building, and the building owner. Historic buildings have been set on fire with blowtorches, wood irreversibly scarred by sandblasting or by harsh mechanical devices such as rotary sanders and rotary wire scrapers, and layers of historic paint inadvertently and unnecessarily removed. In addition, property owners using techniques that substitute speed for safety have been injured by toxic lead vapors or dust by the paint that they were trying to remove, or by misuse of the paint removers themselves. Owners of historic properties considering paint removal should also be aware of the amount of time and labor involved. While removing damaged layers of paint from a door or porch railing may be readily accomplished within a reasonable period of time by one or two people, removing paint from larger areas of a building can, without professional assistance, easily become unmanageable and produce less than satisfying results. The amount of work involved in any paint removal project must therefore be analyzed by a case-by-case basis. Hiring qualified professionals will often be a cost-effective decision due to the expense of materials, the special equipment required and the amount of time involved further paint removing companies experienced in dealing with the inherent health and safety dangers of paint removal should purchase such protective devices as are needed to mitigate any dangers and should be aware of state or local environmental and/ or health regulations for hazardous waste removal, so all in all, paint removal is a messy expensive and potentially dangerous aspect of rehabilitating or restoring historic buildings and should not be undertaken without careful thought concerning first its necessity and second which is the available recommended methods in the safest and most appropriate job at hand so let's talk about repainting historic buildings for cosmetic reasons If existing exterior paint on wood siding, eaves, window sills, sash and shutters, doors and decorative features shows no evidence of paint deterioration, such as chalking, blistering, peeling and or cracking, then there is no physical reason to repaint, much less to remove the paint, nor is color fading. Of itself insufficient justification to repaint a historic building. The decision to repaint may not be based altogether on paint failure. Where there is a new owner, or even where ownership has remained constant through the years, taste in colors often changes. Therefore, if repainting is primarily to alter a builder's primary and accent colors, a technical factor of paint accumulation should be taken into consideration. When paint builds up to a thickness of cons- up considerable, which is considerable approximately about a sixteenth of an inch, um, approximately 16 to 30 layers, one or more extra coats of paint may be enough to trigger cracking and peeling in a limited or even widespread areas of the building surface. This results because excessively thick paint is less able to withstand the shrinkage or pull of an additional coat as it dries and is also less able to tolerate thermal stresses. Thick paint invariably fails to the weakest point of adhesion. The oldest layers next to the wood, cracking and peeling follow. Therefore, if there are no signs of paint failure, it may be somewhat risky to still add another layer of unneeded paint simply for color's sake extreme changes in color may also require more than one coat to provide proper hiding power and more than one coat to provide the full color when paint appears to be nearing the critical thickness a change of accent colors that is just to limit proportions of the trim may be an acceptable compromise without chancing cracking or peeling of paint on wooden siding. If the decision to repaint is nonetheless made, the new color or colors should be, at a minimum, be appropriate to the style and setting of the building. On the other hand, where the intent is to restore or accurately reproduce the colors originally used or those from a significant period in the building's evolution, they should be based on the results of a paint analysis identification of exterior paint surface conditions and recommended treatments. So it is assumed that a preliminary check will already have been made to determine first that the painted exterior surfaces are indeed wood and not stucco, metal or other wood substitutes and second that the wood is not decayed so that repainting would be superfluous. For example If any area of bare wood, such as window sills, has been exposed for a long period of time to standing water, wood rot is a strong possibility. Repair or replacement of deteriorated wood should take place before painting. After the two basic issues have been resolved, the surface condition identification process may commence. The historic building will undoubtedly exhibit a variety of paint colors and conditions. For example, paint on the wooden siding and doors may be adhering firmly, paint on the eaves peeling, and paint on the porch, balusters, and windowsills cracking and alligatoring. The accurate identification of each paint problem is therefore the first step in planning an appropriate overall solution. Paint service conditions can be grouped according to their relative severity. Class 1 Conditions include minor blemishes or dirt collection and generally require no paint removal. Class two conditions include failure of the top layer or layers of paint and generally require limited paint removal. And class three conditions include substantial or multiple layer failure and generally require total paint removal it is precisely because conditions will vary at different paint or different points on the building that a careful inspection is critical each item of painted exterior woodwork for example siding doors windows eaves shutters and decorative elements should be examined early in the planning phase and surface conditions noted as well so let's talk about class 1 exterior surface conditions, which generally require no paint removal. And these include, as we just said, dirt, soot, pollution, cobwebs, insect cocoons, etc. Cause of condition. Basically, let's call it environmental grime or organic matter that tends to cling to painted exterior surfaces. And in particular, protective surfaces such as eaves do not, constitute a paint problem unless paint over rather than removed prior to repainting. If not removed, the surface deposits can be a barrier to proper adhesion and cause peeling. So let's talk about the recommended treatment for such. Most surface matter can be loosened by a strong direct stream of water from a nozzle or garden hose. Stubborn dirt and soot will need to be scrubbed off using one half cup of household detergent in a gallon of water with a medium soft bristle brush. The clean surface should then be rinsed thoroughly and permitted to dry before further inspection to determine if repainting is necessary. So let's do this quite often. Cleaning provides a satisfactory enough result to postpone painting for up to one to two years. So let's talk about... Um, Another recommended treatment, so solvent blistered areas <clears throat> first, let's bring in the mildew, but we're going to talk about the mildew um, cause of the condition and this is we're still we're still dealing in uh, class one here, and we're dealing with mildew, and uh, this is caused by fungi which are feeding on nutrients contained in the paint film or on dirt adhering to any surface, because moisture is the single most important factor in its growth. Mildew tends to thrive in areas where dampness and lack of sunshine are problems such as windowsills, under eaves, around gutters, and downspouts, on the north side of buildings, or in shaded areas near shrubbery. It may sometimes be difficult to distinguish between mildew from dirt. But there is a simple test to differentiate. If a drop of household bleach is placed on the suspected surface, the mildew will immediately turn white, whereas the dirt will continue to look like dirt. So the recommended treatment for mildew, because mildew can only exist in a shady, warm, moist area, attention given should be to altering the environment that that is very conducive to the fungal growth. The area in question may be shaded by trees, which need to be pruned back or to allow sunlight to strike the building, or may lack rain gutters or proper drainage at the base of the building. If the shady or moist conditions can be altered, the mildew is less likely to reappear. A recommended solution for removing mildew consists of one cup of non-ammoniated detergent, one quart of household bleach, and one gallon of water. When the surface is scrubbed with the solution using a medium-soft brush, the mildew should should disappear. However, for particularly stubborn spots, an additional cord of bleach may be added. After the area is mildew-free, it should then be rinsed with a direct stream of water from a nozzle of a garden hose and permitted to dry thoroughly. When repainting, specially formulated mildew-resistant primers and finished coat should be used. So let's talk about excessive chalking. So what's the cause of this condition? Chalking or powdering, so you could run your finger across it and you'll have a white powder on your fingers. Powdering of the painted surface is caused by the gradual disintegration of the resin in the paint film. The amount of chalking is determined both by the formulation of the paint and the amount of ultraviolet light. To which the paint is exposed in moderation chalking is the ideal way ideal way for paint to age because the chalk when rinsed with rainwater carries discoloration and dirt away from from and with it and thus provides an ideal surface for repainting to adhere to but when allowed to become in excess however it is not desirable because the chalk can wash down onto a surface of a different color beneath the painted areas and cause streaking as well as rapid disintegration of the paint film itself. Also, if a paint contains too much pigment for the amount of binder, as the old white lead carbonate oil paints often did, excessive chalking can thus result. So the recommended treatment for chalking, the chalk should be cleaned off with a solution of one half cup of household detergent into one gallon of water. Using medium soft bristle brush, after scrubbing to remove the chalk, the surface should be rinsed with a direct stream of water from the nozzle of a garden hose, allowed to dry thoroughly, but not long enough for the chalking process to reoccur and be repainted using a non chalking paint next time. So let's talk about staining the cause of the condition of paint staining. The staining of paint coatings usually results from excess moisture reacting with materials within the wood substrate. There are two common types of staining, neither of which requires any paint removal. The most prevalent type of stain is due to the oxidation or rusting of iron nails or metal, iron, steel or copper, anchorage type devices. A second type of stain is caused by a chemical reaction between moisture and natural extractives in certain woods, red cedar or redwood, which results in a surface deposit of colored matter. This is most apt to occur in new replacement wood within the first 10 to 15 years. Recommended treatment. In both cases, the source of the stain should first be located and the moisture problem corrected thereof. When stains are caused by rusting of the heads of nails used to attach shingles or siding to the exterior wall, or or used to attach shingles uh, that become the nails start to become rusting or oxidizing, and oxi- any other oxidizing iron or steel or copper anchorage devices adjacent to the painted surface, the metal objects themselves should be hand hand sanded and coated with a rust inhibited primer followed by two finished coats. Exposed nail heads should ideally be countersunk, spot primed, and the holes filled with high quality wood filler, except where exposure of the nail head was part of the original construction system of the, or the wood is too fragile to withstand the countersinking procedure. So as you can imagine, this could be quite time and quite costly for the tens of thousands of nails on some major structures. Discoloration due to color extractives in replacement wood can usually be cleaned with a solution of equal parts of denatured alcohol and water. After the effective area has been rinsed and permitted to dry, a stain blocking primer especially developed for preventing this type of stain should be applied. Two primer coats are recommended for severe cases of bleeding prior to the finished coat each primer coat should be allowed to dry for at least 48 hours so let's move to our uh, class two exterior service conditions generally requiring limited paint removal so in class two our first uh, condition is going to called crazing so fine crazing is jagged interconnected breaks in the top layer of paint This results when paint that is several layers thick becomes excessively hard and brittle with age and is consequently no longer able to expand and contract with the wood in response to changes in temperature and humidity. As the wood swells, the bond between the paint layers is broken and hairline cracks appear. Although somewhat more difficult to detect as opposed to other more obvious paint problems, it is well worth the time to scrutinize all surfaces for crazing. If not corrected, exterior moisture will enter the crazed surface, resulting in further swelling of the wood and eventually deep cracking and alligatoring. A Class three condition which requires total paint removal, if this was the case. So let's talk about recommended treatments. Crazing can be treated by hand, or mechanical sanded surfaces than repainting. Although the hairline cracks may tend to show through the new paint, the surface will be protected against exterior moisture penetration. So let's talk about another instance in class two inner coat peeling. The cause of the condition of intercoat peeling can be the result of improper surface preparation prior to the last repainting. This most often occurs in protected areas such as the eaves and covered porches because these surfaces do not receive a regular rinsing from normal rainwater and salts from airborne pollutants thus accumulate on the surface. And if not cleaned off, the new paint will not adhere properly and that layer will eventually peel. Another common cause of intercoat peeling is that one of incompatibility between paint types. For example, if oil paint is applied over latex paint, peeling of the top coat can sometimes result since upon aging, the oil paint becomes harder and less elastic than the latex paint. If latex paint is applied over old, chalking, oil paint. Peeling can also occur between the latex paint if the latex paint is unable to penetrate the chalky surface and adhere if it's not roughed up enough. So let's talk about a recommended treatment. First, where salts or impurities have caused the peeling and affected areas should be washed down thoroughly after scraping. Then wipe dry. Finally, the surface should be hand or mechanically sanded, then repainted. Where peeling was the result of using incompatible paints, the peeling top coat should be scraped and hand or mechanically sanded. Application of a high quality oil, oil type exterior primer will probably provide the surface over which either an oil or latex top coat can be su- successfully laid. So let's talk about another condition in Class 2. Solvent blistering. Cause of the condition. Solvent blistering, the result of a less common application error, is not caused by moisture but by the action of ambient heat on paint, solvent, or thinners in the paint film. If solvent-rich paint is applied in direct sunlight, the top surface can dry too quickly and, as a result, solvents become trapped beneath the dried paint film. When the solvent vaporizes, it forces its way through the paint film, resulting in surface blisters. This problem occurs more often with dark colored pigments because darker colors absorb more heat than lighter ones. So distinguish between solvent blistering and solvent blistering caused by moisture, a blister should be cut open If another layer of paint is visible, then solvent blistering is likely the problem, whereas the bare wood is revealed. Moisture is probably to blame. Solvent blisters are generally quite small. So let's talk about the recommended treatment for this. Solvent blistered areas can be scraped, hand, or mechanically sanded to the next sound level, then repainted. In order to prevent blistering of painted surfaces, paint should be applied, should not be applied in direct sunlight. Let's talk about wrinkling, cause of the condition. Another error in application that can easily be avoided is wrinkling. This occurs when the top layer of paint dries before the layer underneath. The top layer of paint actually removes the paint underneath. A primer, for example, is drying. Specific causes of wrinkling include applying paint too thick, applying a second coat before the first one dries, inadequate brushing out, and, number four, painting in temperatures higher than recommended by the manufacturer. So the recommended treatment. The wrinkle layer can be removed by scraping followed by a hand or mechanical sanding to provide as even a surface as possible then repainted following the manufacturer's application instructions. So let's uh, get into Class 3, painting issues. Exterior surface conditions generally required total paint removal in Class 3. If surface conditions are such that the majority of paint will have to be removed prior to repainting, It is suggested that a small sample of intact paint be left in an inconspicuous area either by covering the area with a a metal plate or by marking the area and identifying it in a special way. When repainting does not take place, the sample should should not be painted over. This will enable future investigators to have a record of the building's paint history. Let's move toward peeling, cause of the condition. Peeling a bare, <coughs> peeling to bare wood is most often caused by excess interior or exterior moisture that collects behind the paint film itself thus impairing proper adhesion generally beginning as blisters cracking or peeling occur as moisture causes the wood to swell, breaking the adhesion of the bottom layer. There is no sense in repainting before detailing or dealing with this moisture problem because the new paint will simply fail. Therefore, the first step in treating peeling is to locate and remove the source or sources of the moisture. Not only because moisture will jeopardize the protective coating of the paint, but because if left unattended, it can ultimately cause permanent damage to the wood. Excess interior moisture should be removed from the building through insulation of exhaust fans and vents. Exterior moisture should be eliminated by correcting the following conditions prior to repainting. Faulty flashing, leaking gutters, defective roof shingles, cracks and holes in siding and trim, deteriorated caulking in joints and seams and shrubbery growing much too close to the painted wood surface. After the moisture problems have been solved, The wood must be permitted to dry out properly. The damaged paint can then be scraped off with a putty knife, hand- or mechanically sanded, primed, and then repainted. So let's talk about cracking and alligatoring in Class 3. Cause of the condition. Cracking and alligatoring are advanced stages of crazing. Once the bond between the layers has been broken due to inner coat paint failure, exterior moisture is able to penetrate the surface cracks, causing the wood to swell and deeper cracking to take place. This process continues until cracking, which forms parallel to the grain, extends to the bare wood. Ultimately, the cracking becomes an overall pattern of horizontal and vertical breaks in the paint layers that looks like a reptile skin, hence alligatoring. In advanced stages of cracking and alligatoring, the surfaces will also flake quite badly. So let's talk about the recommended treatment. If cracking and alligatoring are present only in the top layers, they can probably be scraped off by hand or mechanically sanded to the next sound layer and then repainted. However, if cracking and or alligatoring have progressed to bare wood and the paint has begun to flake, It will need to be totally removed. Methods include scraping or paint removal with electric heat plate, electric heat guns, or chemical strippers, depending on the particular area involved. Bare wood should be primed within 48 hours and then repainted. Selecting the appropriate, safest method to remove paint. Error always on the side of caution for health risks. After having presented the hierarchy of exterior paint surface conditions from the mild considerations such as mildew which simply requires cleaning prior to repainting to serious conditions which such as peeling and alligatoring which require total paint removal one important thought bears repeating if a paint problem has been identified that warrants either limited or total paint removal the gentlest method possible for the particular wooden element of the historic building should be selected from the many available methodologies. The treatments recommended, based upon field testing, as well as on on on-site monitoring of, say, the Department of the Interior, grant and aid and certification of rehabilitation projects, are therefore those which take three overriding issues into consideration. Number one the continued protection and preservation of the historic exterior woodwork. Number two, the retention of the sequence of historic paint layers. And number three, the health and safety of those individuals performing the paint removal. By applying these criteria, it will be seen that no paint removal method is without its drawbacks and all recommendations are qualified in varying degrees. So, the methods for paint removal. So, after a particular exterior paint surface condition has been identified, the next step in planning for repainting, if paint removal is required, is selecting an appropriate method for such removal. The method or methods selected should be suitable for the specific paint problem as well as the particular wooden element of the building. So methods for paint removal can be divided into three categories. Frequently, however, a combination of the three methods is used. Each method is defined as we move forward, then discuss further and specific recommendations made. Abrasive, or abrading, the paint surface by manual and or mechanical means, such as scraping and sanding, generally used for surface preparation and limited paint removal be very difficult to do a whole house this way. Thermal. Softens and raising the paint layers by applying heat followed by scraping and sanding. Generally used for total paint removal. Chemical. Softening of the paint layers with chemical strippers followed by scraping and sanding. Generally used for total paint removal. Abrasive methods. Manual abrasive methods. So if conditions have been identified that require limited paint removal, such as crazing, coat peeling, solvent blistering and wrinkling, scraping and hand sanding should be the first methodology employed before using any mechanical means. Even in the case of more serious conditions, such as peeling, where the damaged paint is weak and already sufficiently loosened from the wood surface, scraping and hand sanding may be all that is needed prior to repainting recommended for abrasive methods manual putty knife slash paint scrapers scraping is usually accomplished with either a putty knife or a paint scraper or both putty knives range in width from one to six inches and have a beveled edge a putty knife is used as a pushing motion going under the paint and working in from the area of a loose toward the edge where the paint is still firmly adhered intact, mm. and in effect beveling the remaining layers so that a smooth transition as of as possible is made between damaged layers and undamaged areas, providing a good smooth plain, painting platform to be readhered. Paint scrapers scrapers are commonly available in one 2 1/2, and three sixteenths, two and a half and three and a half inch widths, and have replaceable blades. In addition, profiled scrapers can be made specifically for use on moldings. As opposed to the putty knife, the paint scraper is used in a pulling motion and works by raking the damaged areas of paint away. The obvious goal in using the putty knife or the paint scraper is to selectively remove the effective layer or layers of paint. However, both of these tools, particularly the paint scraper with its hooked surface, must be used with care to properly prepare the surface and to avoid gouging of the wood. Sandpaper, sanding block, and sanding sponges. So after manually removing the damaged layer or layers by scraping, the uneven surface, due to the almost inevitable removal of varying numbers of paint layers in a given area, will need to be smoothed or feathered out prior to be repainting as stated before. Hand sanding, as opposed to harsher mechanical sanding, is recommended if the area is relatively limited. A coarse grit, open coat flint sandpaper, the least expensive kind, is useful for this purpose because as the sandpaper clogs with paint, it must be discarded and the process repeated until the paint layers adhere uniformly. Blocks made of wood or hard rubber or even felt, which is some of the most expensive versions, and covered with sandpaper are useful for hand sanding flat surfaces. Sanding sponges, which are (coughs) rectangular sponges with an abrasive aggregate onto their surfaces, are also available for fine detail work. That requires reaching into grooves because the sponge easily conforms to curves and surfaces of irregularity. All sanding should be done with the grain, never cross grain. So, let's talk about a summary of the br- abrasive methods, the manual methods. So, it's recommended to use a putty knife, scraper, sandpaper, sanding block, sanding sponge, felt block. So, it's applicable to all building areas and for use on class one, class two, and class three conditions of paint breakdown and the health safety factors. Take precautions against lead dust, eye damage, and dispose of lead paint residue properly. Abrasive methods, mechanical removal paint. If hand sanding for purposes of surface preparation has not been productive, or if the effective area is too large to consider hand sanding by itself, mechanical abrasive methods, For example, power-operated tools may be needed or employed. However, it should be noted that the majority of tools available for paint removal can cause damage to fragile wood and must be used with great, great care. Recommended abrasive methods, mechanical. The orbital sander. Designed as a finishing or smoothing tool, not for the removal of multiple layers of paint. The orbital sander is thus recommended when limited paint removal is required prior to repainting. Because it sands in a small diameter circle or circular motion, some models can also be switched to a back-and-forth vibrating action, and some have an oscillation built in. This tool is particularly effective for feathering areas where the paint has been scraped. The abrasive surfaces varies from about 3 times 7 inches to 4 times 9 inches and sandpaper is attached either by clamps or sliding clips. A medium grit open coat aluminum oxide paper should be used. Fine sandpaper clogs up so easily that it is ineffective for smoothing paint. Let's talk about the use of a belt sander. A lot of us have those in our arsenal of tools in the garage. So a second type of power tool, the belt sander can also be used for moving layers of paint. But in this case, the abrasive surface is a continuous belt of sandpaper and travels at a high rate of speed and consequently offers much less control than that of the orbital sander. Because of the potential for more damage to the paint or of the wood, use of the belt sander also, with a medium grit sandpaper should be limited only to flat surfaces, and only skilled operators should be permitted to operate it within the historic preservation project. So what's not recommended with these mechanical paint removers? A rotary drill attachments. Rotary drill attachments such as the rotary sanding disk and other rotary wire strippers should be avoided. The disc sander, usually a disc of sandpaper about five inches in diameter, secured with a rubber-based attachment, which is in turn connected to the electric drill or other motorized housing, can easily leave visible circular depressions in the wood, which are difficult to hide, even with repainting. The rotary wire scraper, clusters of metal wires, similarly attached to an electric drill type unit, can actually shred the wooden surface and thus can be used exclusively for removing corrosion on the paint from metals. Let's talk about uh, water blasting, water blasting above 600 PSI to remove paint is not recommended because it can actually force water into the woodwork, work into the woodwork rather than cleaning loose paint and grime from the surface. At worst, High-pressure water blasting causes the water to penetrate exterior sheathing and damages interior finishes. A detergent solution, medium-soft bristle brush, and a garden hose for purposes of rinsing is the gentlest method involved in water and is recommended with cleaning exterior surfaces prior to repainting. Let's talk about sandblasting. Finally, and undoubtedly the most Vehemently, not recommended by me, the historic preservationist, sandblasting painted exterior surfaces will indeed remove paint, but at the same time can scar wooden elements well beyond recognition. As with rotary wire scrapers, sandblasting erodes the wood's porous fibers, which is the spring wood, faster than the hard. Dense fibers, which is the summer wood, leaves a pitted surface surface with ridges and valleys. Sandblasting will tend to erode projecting areas of carvings and molding. Hence, it removes paint from concave areas. Hence, this abrasive method is potentially the most damaging of all possibilities. So even if a contractor promises to blast pressure that can be controlled so that the paint is removed without harming the historic exterior woodwork, don't listen to them. So let's do a summary of the abrasive methods in the mechanical removal of paint. So what's recommended, an orbital sandal, sander, belt sander, and very skilled operators for both. Applicable areas for for (coughs) using this on buildings, flat surfaces, for example, sidings, eaves, doors, and window sills. For use on class two and class three conditions, it's excellent. The health and safety factors, Take precautions against lead dust and eye damage. Dispose of lead paint residue properly. And this type of mechanical heavy uh, remediation um, does not recommend using rotary drill attachments, high-pressure water blasting, and/or sand blasting. Let's talk about thermal methods, where exterior service conditions have been identified that warrant total paint removal, such as peeling, cracking, or alligatoring. Two thermal devices, the electric heat plate and the electric heat gun, have proven to be quite successful for use on different wooden elements of a historic building. One thermal method, the blowtorch, is not recommended because it can scorch the wood or even burn the building down. So, recommended thermal methods. The electric heat plate. The electric heat plate operates between 500 and 800 degrees Fahrenheit not hot enough to vaporize lead paint. Using about 15 amps of power, the plate is held close to the painted surface until the layers of paint begin to soften and blister, then removed to an adjacent location on the wood while the softened paint is scraped off with a putty knife. It should be noted that the heat plate is most successful when the paint is very thick. With practice, the operator can successfully move the heat plate evenly across the flat surface, such as a wooden siding or a window sill or door, in a continuous motion, thus lessening the risk of scorching the wood in an attempt to reheat the edge of the paint sufficiently for effective removal. Since the electric heat plate's coil is red-hot, Extreme caution should be taken to avoid igniting clothing or burning the skin. If an extension cord is used, it should be a heavy duty cord with a three, plong, a three prong ground um, to cause, you know, to reduce any chance of electrical fire. Therefore, it is recommended that this implement be used with a single circuit and that a fire extinguisher always be kept quite close at hand just in case. And coming to the end here, let's talk about the electric heat gun. The electric heat gun or electric hot air gun looks like a handheld hairdryer with a heavy duty metal case. It has an electrical resistance coil that typically heats between 500 and 750 degrees Fahrenheit and again uses about 15 amps of power, which requires a heavy duty extension cord. There are, though, some heat guns to operate at higher temperatures but they should not be purchased for removing old paint because of the danger of the lead paint vapors. The temperature is controlled by a vent on the side of the heat gun. When the vent is closed, the heat increases. A fan forces a stream of hot air against the painted woodwork, causing a blister to form. At that point, the softened paint can be peeled back with a putty knife. It can be used to the best advantage when a panel door was originally varnished, then painted a number of times. In this case, the paint will come off quite easily, often leaving an almost pristine varnished surface behind. Like the heat plate, the heat gun works best on heavy-duty paint buildup. It is, however, not very successful on only one or two layers of paint or on surfaces that have quickly only been varnished recently. The varnish simply becomes sticky and the wood scorches. Although the heat gun is heavier and more tiring to use than the heat plate, it is particularly effective for removing paint from detail work because the nozzle can be more limited than the heat plate and the most successfully used in conjunction with the heat plate. For example, it takes about two or three hours to strip a panel door with a heat gun. But if used in combination with a heat plate for the large flat area, the time can usually be cut in half. Although the heat gun seldom scorches wood, it can cause fires like a blowtorch can if aimed at a dusty cavity between the exterior sheathing and siding and interior lath and plaster. A fire may smolder for hours before flames break out through the surface. Therefore, this thermal device is best suited for use on solid decorative elements such as molding, balusters, fretwork, and gingerbread work. So let's talk about those blow torches which these are absolutely not recommended. Blow torches such as handheld propane or butane torches were widely used in the past for paint removal because their thermal devices were Other thermal vices that we just talked about are not available. So with this technique, the flame is directed toward the paint until it begins to bubble and loosen from the surface. Then the paint is scraped off with a putty knife. Although this is a relatively fast process, at temperatures between 3,200 and 3,800 degrees Fahrenheit, the open flame is not only capable of burning a careless operator and causing severe damage to eyes and skin, but it can also easily scorch or ignite most wood. The other fire hazard is more insidious. Most frame buildings have an airspace between the exterior sheathing and the siding, an interior lath and plaster. This cavity usually has accumulation of dust, which is also easily ignited by the open flame of a blowtorch. Finally, lead-based paints will vaporize at high temperatures resulting in releasing toxic fumes that can be unknowingly inhaled. Therefore, because both the heat plate and the heat gun are generally safer to use, that is, the risks are much more controllable, the blowtorch should definitely be avoided at all costs. So a summary of thermal methods recommended is the electric heat plate and the electric heat gun. Applicable areas of building The electric heat plate, flat surfaces such as siding, eaves, sash, sills, doorways. Electric heat gun is solid decorative moldings, balustrades, fretwork, and or gingerbread. Much more, uh, you know, it's much more variable. And for use basically, the thermal methods are for class three conditions, as we said, and the health and safety factors. So take precautions against eye damage and fire. Dispose of lead paint residue properly. Not recommended is the blowtorch. Let's talk about chemical methods for a minute. So with the availability of effective thermal methods for total paint removal, the need for chemical methods in the context of preparing historic exterior woodwork for repainting becomes quite limited. Solvent-based or caustic strippers may, however, play a supplemental role in the number of situations including Removing paint residue from intricate decorative procedures or in cracks or hard-to-reach areas, such as the heat gun, has not been completely effective. Removing paint on window muttons because heat devices can easily break down the glass. Removing varnish on exterior doors after all layers of the paint have been removed by a heat plate or heat gun if the original varnish finish is being restored. And last, removing paint from detachable wooden elements, such as exterior shutters, balusters, columns, and doors, by dip-stripping them with other methods, are too laborious. So there were chemical methods of removing paint. So let's talk about recommended chemical methods, but you must use extreme, extreme caution. Because all chemical paint removers can involve potential health and safety hazards, no wholehearted recommendations can be made from that standpoint. Commonly known as paint removers or strippers, both solvent-based or caustic products are commercially available that when poured, brushed, or sprayed, or painted exterior woodwork are capable of softening several layers of paint at a time so that the resulting sludge, which should be remembered is nothing more less than the sequence of historic paint layers you're removing off. These can all be removed by a simple putty knife. Detachable wood elements, such as exterior shutters, can be also dip-stripped, but this is very dangerous. So solvent-based strippers. The formulas tend to vary, but generally consist of combinations of organic solvents, such as methylene chloride, isopropanol, toluol, exol, and methanol. Thickeners such as methyl cellulose and various additives such as paraffin wax used to prevent the volatile additives such as <coughs> which are solvents from evaporating before they have time to soak through the multiple layers of paint. thus, while some solvent based strippers are quite thin and therefore unsuitable for use on vertical surfaces, others called semi paste strippers are formulated for use on vertical surfaces or on the underside of horizontal surfaces. However, whether liquid or semi-paste, there are two important points to stress when using any solvent-based stripper. First, the vapors from the organic chemicals can be highly toxic if inhaled. Skin contact is equally dangerous because the solvents can be absorbed. Second, many solvent-based strippers are flammable, even though application out-of-doors may somewhat mitigate health and safety hazards. A respirator with special filters for organic solvents is recommended, and, of course, solvent-based strippers should never be used around open flames, lighted cigarettes, or with steel wool around electrical outlets. But although appearing to be quite the simplest for exterior use. A particular type of solvent based stripper needs to be mentioned here because it can actually cause the moisture problems. Known as water rinsable such products have a high proportion of methylene chloride, together with emulsions, <clears throat> together with emulsion lifters, and emulsion of fires. Although the dissolved paint can be rinsed off with water, With a minimum of scraping, this ultimately creates more of a problem in cleaning up and proper disposing of the sludge. In addition, these strippers can leave a gummy, slimy residue on the wood that requires removable with other solvents. Finally, water-rinsable strippers tend to rinse the grain of the wood more than regular strippers. On balance, then... The regular strippers would seem to work just as well for exterior purposes and are perhaps even better from the standpoint of proper lead sludge um, from the disposal aspect because they must be hand scraped as opposed to rinsed off. A coffee can can with a wire uh, stretched across the top is one effective way to collect the sludge. When the putty knife is run across the wire, the sludge will simply fall into the can. Then when the can is filled, the wire is removed. The can capped and the lead paint sludge disposed of accordingly to local health regulations. Let's talk about caustic strippers. Until the advent of solvent-based strippers, caustic strippers were used exclusively when a chemical method was determined appropriate for total paint removal prior to repainting or refinishing now it is more difficult to find commercially prepared caustic solutions in hardware and paint stores for the happy homeowner because the use uh, with the exception of lye which is caustic soda because solvent-based strippers packaged in small quantities tend to dominate the market So, most commercial dip stripping companies, however, continue to use variations of the caustic bath process because it's still the cheapest method available for removing paint. Generally, dip stripping should be left to professional companies because caustic solutions can dissolve skin and permanently damage the eyes as well (coughs) as present serious disposal problems in large quantities. If exterior shutters or other detachable elements are being sent out for stripping in a caustic solution it is wise to see examples of the company's finished work while some companies do a first-rate job others can leave a residue of paint in carvings and grooves wooden elements may also be soaked too long so that the wood sanding much wood sanding is required later on in addition Assurances should be given by these companies that the caustic paint removers will be neutralized with a mild acid solution or at least thoroughly rinsed with water after dipping. A caustic residue makes the wood feel quite slippery. If this is not done, the light residue will continue and it will actually relieve the new paint that's put on and cause it to fail rather quickly.